This episode is brought to you by our incredible community of listener supporters on Patreon. Our Patreon offers listeners exclusive archival content, extended episodes, and access to community conversations diving deeper with past guests. Your monthly pledge ensures that For the Wild has the funding to keep producing informative, thoughtful, and rooted conversations and programming. All funding supports our small team of creatives, podcast production, and special For the Wild projects like our zines and slow study courses. To support us on Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash for the wild, or if you would rather make a one-time donation or recurring donation outside of Patreon, please visit for the wild.world slash donate. If you value this content and want to support us in continuing this work, please go over to our website and make a contribution. Also consider rating us on iTunes so that we can keep growing this community and network towards Earth regeneration. And if you're a musician and would like your music played on the show, go to our website and upload your work. We're excited to take a listen. The silence is broken by somebody crying Trying to be heard, never a word Always the attitude, sort out your own, always alone. Wishing for something the world is denying. Out in the wilderness, somebody's crying. Somebody wishing for something to happen, wishing to tell. Wishing to help Someone was listening Someone who cared Never despaired Someone to lean on And someone to trust Who needs your assistance And finds your disgust Hello and welcome to For the Wild Podcast I'm Ayanna Young Today we are speaking with Peter Wohnbin. Peter spent over 20 years working in the Forestry Commission in Germany before leaving to put his ideas of ecology into practice. He now runs an environmentally friendly woodland in the Eiffel Mountains in Germany, where he is working for the return of primeval forest. He also runs a nature academy, where he leads guided tours and seminars. He is the author of numerous books about nature, including The Hidden Life of Trees, a New York Times bestseller, and The Inner Life of Animals. Peter will also be speaking at the Geography of Hope Conference this March in Point Reyes, California. The theme this year is Finding Resilience in Nature in Perilous Times. Well, welcome to the show, Peter. I'm so excited to speak to you now and also meet you in Point Reyes in March. Yeah, thank you very much, Ayana. I'm really proud to be part of your show. This topic, the hidden life of trees and forestry and your work is so dear to my heart as I myself am a forest dweller and a restoration ecologist and spend the majority of my life amongst these incredible beings. And reading your book was so enlightening to learn about all of these complexities that are so often left out of the dominant narrative of forest. 
I mean, certain things come to mind, like how from a tree dying shortly after their life partner passes to trees nursing their sick neighbors or trees ultrasonically scream when they're thirsty or warn one another of predatory insects. It's just, it's so enlivening to be reminded that there are beings on this earth who still know how to look after one another and have done so even through so many planetary shifts. These lessons of the forest are the lessons I think humanity needs to know most right now. Peter, you've studied forestry and worked for a long time as a commercial forester before you began stewarding your woodland in the way you do today. And I'm wondering, what are some crucial moments for you during your commercial forestry career that caused you to shift your life and your perspective in this way? First thing was when we felt an old dead beech tree, which I thought was just uh, worth firewood. And after um, I have, uh, felt all the woodworkers have felt those this old tree, and it was uh, transported for firewood. Um, but afterwards, I, fe- I felt sorry for the insects, for for the fungi which, which were living in this this old tree. And uh, then I began I began to think about what I'm really doing to this forest. Or uh, shortly after that, uh, I felt a sick tree. And uh, in March, and when they uh, felt the tree afterwards, there were a mess, a mess of water running out of the stump as if the tree were bleeding. And uh, yeah, and I thought, what are, what are you doing to this wonderful ecosystem? And then I began to think about what I really wanted to be as a little child. As a little child, I wanted to be someone who protect nature. And I, uh, when I was let's say 12 or 13, I realized that you can study something like this. Uh, you, and um, yeah, when, when I became 19, I heard about forestry and I thought, ah, a forester is something like a tree keeper. And uh, that should match to my dreams about nature. And um, after uh, leaving university and uh, beginning to work in a sense, like I described it a little uh, earlier, uh, then I realized, no, a forester is not a tree keeper. A forester is a tree butcher and uh, is a timber producer. It's okay, but uh, it's not what I've, I've dreamt, dreamed of. And so I'm, I'm uh, really happy that the the, the book uh, on on trees was so successful because uh, with the money uh, we earned, uh, we founded a nature academy, and in this academy, I can now. Uh, work as someone I dreamed of when I was six years old. I loved how you explained that you wanted to be a tree protector, but that a forester was a tree butcher. And I had never thought of it in those words. Immediately, the moment you said, of, spoke of your academy, I wanted to be there with you and learning. And I would just love to hear about your beloved woodland. Our ecosystem is in a very bad mood because um, we have here in Germany, we don't have any single square meter of primeval forest left. Um, Our primeval forest um, has been a beech forest. Um, A beech forest form a very stable ecosystem because they can control their own temperature, create their own microclimate and uh, are very stable uh, over thousands of years. 
But in the last centuries in Germany, uh, most forests, uh, real, real forests have been gone. Now we have plantations, spruce plantations, pine plantations, oak plantations, and so on. And uh, the people are used to it and say, ah, that, that are forests. And when we uh, get um, uh, visitors from other countries, they say, no, you don't have forests, you have plantations. We have not, not no real primeval forest because all forests have been managed. But from old beech forest, even managed forests, we just have three per mill left of uh, the whole um, woodland. So um, it's we, we have damaged our forests here in Germany, and we we are really good in giving advice to uh, Brazil or Indonesia to protect the the rainforest there. But uh, I think um, it's perhaps five to noon here in Germany for, for the forest, and it's, it's a lot of work to do. But the real forests we should have here, those beach forests where are just a few remnants um, here in our area, they are so wonderful. Because when you come in those old forests, it's like going in a cathedral uh, of, of uh, yeah, let's say, silver-gray um, stems, which are very tall, the, the trees can become as old as 500 years. It's, that's not that old than that uh, your redwoods can become. But 500 years, we don't have any forest where we have trees of that age here in Germany left. So I'm, I'm, I really try hard to work on restore such forests and um, undisturbed beach forests. You can observe all those wonderful things that the trees are caring for each other, that they are. Um, caring for their offspring, that they are care, caring for uh, old stumps, that they work together. And uh, the less you touch such a forest, the healthier it is. And that uh, brought my thought uh, to the point that we should use just a little wood, a uh, little timber, uh, just as much as we really need. And in most cases, when you think about paper, when you print your emails, for example, uh, in most cases, it's not necessary. And um, in some cases, it's okay to use wood and, for example, for furniture or good books. <laughs> but uh, in many cases, we don't. We wouldn't need that big amount of, of timber. And uh, yeah, that's, that's a complex task for, for us to do. But when you see those untouched old beech tree forests, then everyone knows instantly uh, that's worth it. So the native forests of your region are primarily deciduous, yet the commercially managed ones are planted with non-native conifers. How would you say they differ in terms of health, biodiversity, and what happens when one of the coniferous plantations is left alone and succession is left to unfold naturally? I think nature don't has any problems with restoring the, the ecosystem. Uh, the problem is, the farther you are away from the natural state, the stronger will be the reaction of nature to, to bring back the old system. For example, when you have such a conifer, let's say spruce plantation, in Germany, they, the, those plantations are very endangered by storms and insects. 57% of the timber is gained through catastrophes. Uh, through storm falls or insect attacks. So it's not really good to, to work or to calculate with such plantation. So it's, it's really not a good business. Um, even if you won't think about the um, ecologic destructions you make with such a management. 
But um, yeah, we have a, every winter we have storms here in Germany, and every time you hear about uh, fallen trees and streets which are which are not able to pass because of such a dream, uh, trees which were fallen such streets. So uh, we have problems, 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 and our uh, animal animals which are living in, in woodlands. They uh, couldn't even live in such plantations. For example, uh, little mites or uh, insects or birds, which are used to live in broadleaf trees like beech or oak, uh, they they are not able to to feed on on needles of spruce or pine. So you find in such artificial ecosystems, you find uh, other animals, uh, which uh, in, in our case, spruce and pine are trees from the taiga, from the northern woodland in, in Sweden, Norway, Russia. And you find in such plantations birds or insects like special ants, uh, which live in such uh, taiga forests. And so we have here in Germany, in many cases, an artificial taiga, and uh, which which has nothing to do with our wonderful bee tree forest. I, I'm, I'm not against conifers where they belong. Uh, when we look at northern Sweden, we have wonderful primeval forests with uh, spruce and, and pine and other species. But here in Germany, we used to have beech trees, oaks, acer, and other trees. And um, they are, in many cases, almost gone. I want to read a quote from your book that just fascinated me regarding this topic. And it was, quote, However, reforestation programs introduce spruce and pines to areas where they are not native, and the newcomers experience substantial problems in their new habitats. Usually they are brought to low elevations that are too warm and dry for conifers to thrive. As a result, the area is dustier, they are easier prey for bark beetles. At this point, frantic scent males begin to swirl around in the canopy, the trees are screaming for help and activating their arsenal of chemical defenses. You absorb all of this with every breath of the forest you take into your lungs. Consider this. Threatened forests are inherently unstable and therefore they are not appropriate places for human beings to live. There is a scientific observation that speaks to this. The blood pressure of forest visitors rises when they are under conifers, whereas it calms down and falls in stands of oaks. And, you know, you go on to explain just this relationship with the forest, uh, with humans in the forest, when we go into these non-native forests that are not natural and they're not meant to be like that. The ecosystem, the weather does not support that type of forest community. And that was so incredible to think about when I've been into tree plantations versus in old growth forest and how I do feel the difference. And I actually really understood that while reading your book, the scientific backing of that, and then your take on it. I, I just wanted to bring that into this conversation because I think it's so fascinating to understand all the dynamics that are left out of the story, uh, the dominant story at least, when we learn about what happens with reforestation in this way that's a really good topic because it shows that we are still part of the forests and uh, many people living in cities think ah perhaps we have lost connection with nature but you can't lose lose connection with nature because it's in your body uh, you're in, in your genes 
when you look at evolution, um, then we know that at minimum since one million years, uh, mankind is making fire. And for making fire, you need, uh, you need timber. And for timber, you need trees. You need a forest. So, for example, brain development. For brain development, we, we need cooked food. Uh, we need fire. We need fire. So uh, our brain is a result of forest, tree energy, let's say like this. So we are uh, strongly connected uh, since one million years with forests. And uh, it's no wonder that our our body, our instincts react on good or bad forests, good or bad ecosystems, good or bad places to settle. And um Therefore, uh, what you describe when you when you feel joy or happiness uh, while walking through a native forest, or uh, vice versa, when you're walking through a plantation, that this, these feelings are, are missing. Uh, that's exactly uh, what your your uh, body and, and your instincts are saying. And some people, for example, when they when they enter our old beech tree forest, uh, I've, I've heard that several times. They said to me. Uh, don't call me crazy, but uh, it's like feeling, it, it feels like coming home. And uh, that's exactly the point. Uh, a, a good, stable forest, and that can be a um, redwood forest at the west coast of North America, that can be a beech tree forest at the east coast of North, North America or in Europe, that can be a spruce uh, forest in northern Scandinavia. Uh, in all in, in, in those forests, it, um, you have good feelings, you have lower blood pressure, uh, your whole body and your mind uh, are, are uh, in a good mood. And uh, when you go through a plantation, your body feels instinctively that this is a catastrophe to nature. And um, and what your body, uh, how your body reacts, that's exactly the reaction of the whole nature. And it's uh, the nature is trying to bring it in a better balance. And that means at first that those plantations will be eaten by bark beetles, by other insects, by, by fungi, which destroy trees. And in the first decades, maybe such forests or plantations look very ugly, but uh, afterwards, in, in just one tree generation, and that may be 500 years, this forest will change in a real forest. <laughs> to talk about the social relationships of trees and through your book and through others work and and scientific findings it's showing that not only do trees not act selfishly or purely competitively but they're also very social they're social beings and in the hidden life of trees you detail kinship that seems to extend beyond single species Susan Samard from the University of British Columbia, whom you reference, noticed that Douglas firs suffered when their paper birch neighbors were removed. The shaded Doug firs were receiving a great deal of carbon from birch through the mycorrhizae, and that this relationship flipped when the season changed and the birch shed their leaves. I would love if you could speak about the social nature of trees and resource sharing 
Perhaps you could give us an example of unique tree relationships from your woodland. Perhaps in general, um, uh, real uh, forest trees, not all trees are real forest trees. Some trees like to live on their own because there are trees of the savanna of grasslands and there are uh, usually no neighboring trees. So there are some trees like willows or some birch tree species uh, or apple trees, cherry trees, which uh, used to live on their own. But in general, for in the most woodlands uh, with the tree species like Douglas fir uh, some, uh, or sequoia or in, in our region, beech trees, oaks, acer and so on, they used to live in, in family bands. And um, uh, there's a, a very good reason for that. A single tree knows instinctively, I'm not a forest. And just as a forest, you can cool down together in a, on a hot summer day. For example, trees are sweating together. A um, big uh, beech tree is consuming as much as 500 liters of uh, water per day. And that means that the, the air gets uh, very humid, uh, much cooler. We have here um, the discoveries from the University of Aachen. They found out that the, diff um, the temperature difference from managed uh, beech tree forest to unmanaged beech tree forest is three degrees Celsius in uh, summertime and two uh, conifer plantations, much more. So the trees can cool down together, can create their own climate. And when we think about climate change, what climate change does to ecosystems, then I would say the damage would be not that big when we wouldn't manage that uh, intensive forest. Because every tree you cut, you fell, uh, cause a damage because you have a gap in the canopy, there comes some sunlight in, the air gets warmer, the air gets drier, and that's stress for the trees. So they try to, to close that gap, but perhaps the next time the forester comes again and the next tree will be felled, and not just one, but thousands, thousands, so the whole ecosystem is warming up. And uh, when we have on top the human-made climate change, then we will see many forests die, as we see them now dying in North America, for example, the lodgepole pine forests, which were, uh, are attacked by the bark beetles. I think that's a mixture of, of many problems, but most of them human-made. So uh, trees are used to uh, climate change because trees can become very old. When we look at uh, Europe, for example, the last thousand years, we have uh, had very warm times. We have had the Little Ice Age in the Middle Ages. Um, I think the last very cold period was in the 1800s. So uh, a tree which can become 500 or even 1,000 years old uh, has to stand climate changes. Uh, but it's only able to stand those changes together as a community. And um, it's not only the climate, but it's also when a tree gets weak, for example, or gets sick, uh, it gets support from, from other trees. We have here in, in my forest a tree which was, was really very heavily damaged. And uh, everyone would have said, that tree is not able to survive. And, uh, but uh, it's like a wonder uh, because uh, this tree has got support from the surround trees through the roots, through the fungi network with sugar solutions and other nutritions. Uh, this tree became strong again and perhaps, and that's just a guess, the next time when the neighboring, one of the neighboring trees gets weak, uh, he can support this tree. So they um, together they build a very stable ecosystem or you can say they built a stable family band because trees, uh, they know exactly 
who is standing beside it. For example, uh, with the root tips, I can detect, ah, this is an oak. I want to support an oak. I, I will support other beech trees. So they connect just with beech trees or uh, even when it gets to the, the, the own seedlings, they can uh, detect whether a seedling is their own or not. And uh, with their own seedlings, they will uh, connect stronger there they get more support. So yeah, you can even say mother trees are caring for their children. Now, some people say, ah, that's much, much too much human terms. Uh, and trees are much more different than uh, using words like this. But I think um, nature has uh, some principles which are wor working really good. And that is for having a good social system. When you support each other, all together can become much, much older. And that system works on trees, that works on antelopes, that works on humans. And we see it nowadays, and that's perhaps, uh, yeah, a little bit ironic when we see we, we had a good system, a worldwide system, uh, a little bit breaking apart. And I hope we see those political situations. Um, if trees could talk to us, they would say, stand together, don't make that nonsense. There's a fascinating section in your book titled Tree School that tells of trees' ability to learn from their elders as well as from their own mistakes and experience. And you go on to explain how when trees are planted in isolation, either in a park or in a land foreign to them, they don't fare as well and they often suffer because they lack the community guidance in their youth. I would just love if you wanted to elaborate a bit on this and you know, what lessons are these isolated trees deprived of when they grow up bereft of family and their communities? All trees like to grow fast and eat as much as they can. And um, trees are creating uh, food by photosynthesis with their, with their leaves, and therefore they need to have as much light as possible. And that's exactly the point. Everyone who grows fast in young years won't become very old. That's a biological principle which you can find in many species. So uh, trees are interested in becoming very old because it takes a lot of time to grow up and to become a tall tree, become the tallest tree, to be on, on top of the forest and then to reproduce. That takes hundreds of years. And so it's very important to become as old as possible to, to use this advantage as long as possible. And therefore, you need a very slow youth growth. And uh, that means that the mother trees bring a deep shadow on the little trees. Just 3% of the sunlight uh, comes down to the little ones, and that's not enough to live. And therefore, uh, the mother trees connect with the little ones over the roots and pump sugar solution to the little ones. You may even say they suckle their children uh, over hundreds of years. We have uh, a hundred-year-old beech tree, little beech tree. It's uh, just one meter in height and as thick as my little finger. So uh, this tree has to wait perhaps uh, one or two centuries more to become an old tree, to be allowed to become an old tree. And um, yeah, that, that's um, in, in cities uh, totally different when you have uh, a tree which is planted near a street. Then this tree gets the full sunlight. It's like a street kit. This tree is allowed to do whatever it wants. So it, it feeds as much as possible sugar because it can make with all the crown, with all the canopy, 
uh, photosynthesis in the full sunlight. It grows very fast, and we love trees which are fast growing because we are impatient. We are a short living creature compared to trees. So uh, we want to see efforts, uh, results during our lifetime. For example, when you plant a tree in your garden, you won't wait for 20 or 30 years uh, to see the, the, the tree growing very slow, but you, you want to harvest apples or cherries, and you want to have something like a garden furniture, which, which gives shadow. So we plant big trees, plant trees which grow very fast. These trees uh, altogether can become very old. That's not so important for us, and it's okay to do so, because our garden, that's our home range, and there are we first. Um, but just to explain, uh, uh, trees in cities or in gardens, they won't become older in, in, in general than two or three hundred years. There are perhaps some uh, exceptions, but most trees won't become much older. And we all think, wow, what an old tree. And in reality, that's a young tree, a young dying. Uh, another example, um, trees have similar behaviors like we have. For example, they, they need to sleep at night. And the science in this point is just at the beginning. There's a team of Finnish and Austrian researchers, which uh, they found out that trees let hang their branches at nighttime, just a little bit. And uh, with some sunlight, they something like stand up. What for? They don't know, because uh, that's a typical phenomena in science. You have answered one question, and then you have to attend new one. But uh, they know that trees have to sleep. And when uh, in the streets you have street lights uh, near a tree uh, and the light is burning the whole night, then the tree is not able to sleep. And those trees will die earlier. to also ask you, how has your understanding of forest as familial communities shaped the way you steward and manage your woodland compared to the ways in which commercial forest management is incompatible with the social structure of forest trees? First, we have to realize you can't manage a forest without disturbing or um, yeah, damaging it. Um, we, we always try to live in, in a good balance with nature and in harmony. And uh, we, we like to have something like a certificate which is saying, okay, you, you, uh, you're allowed to do so because you, you don't do any harm to anyone. You, that, that's not possible. Every living being uh, uh, does harm to, to everyone else because uh, it needs space, which another could take, and so on. So it, the, for me, the, the main question is, how could we manage a forest 
without harming it too much uh, or with uh, with harming it lesser than we do it now and uh, um, the first thing is uh, we have when we realize that we can't uh, manage a forest manage a forest means um, cutting trees uh, we can't cut trees and protect them <laughs> the trees dead afterwards so uh, uh, the question is uh, we should have uh, protected areas where trees can live their life and, uh, and can live in family bands undisturbed for centuries that's very important for me to have uh, big enough areas where trees are allowed to do so and then the rest of the forest we should um, manage as close as possible to nature and that means that we should use the tree species of the special area where the, where the woodlands are, which we manage. In, in your case, that would be Douglas fir, hemlock, uh, and, and other species. And in, in our case here, it, it would be beech and oak and acer and ash and so on. And uh, the, the second is the trees should as, uh, live um, as long as possible. In, in, in Germany, uh, the average age of trees is 77. That's nothing. That are not real trees, that are tree babies. That's the average age of trees in Germany. So I think they should grow uh, older. And they should become older. We should lift them, although they live in managed forests, in family bands. And when we harvest, then uh, uh, not with big machines. We have um, all over the world the same technique. Um, with big harvesters that are machines which cut trees and cut them into pieces, cut off the branches and uh, make them ready for transport. And those machines are very heavy. They weight up to 50 tons and they compress the soil. Uh, and then we, we don't have any oxygen left in the soil. We don't have the capacity of water storage. It goes from 100% down to 5%. And it's very important for the trees to have this stored water in the ground because on hot summer days, when there's no rain and, and, a, and a big tree needs 500 liters per day, then those 500 liters have to come from anywhere. And when the soil is dry, then the tree will, uh, will become weak and sick and perhaps die someday. So uh, and the damages when you drive with a big machine in such a forest, this damage, according to scientists, will be uh, restored perhaps after the next ice age or recover after the next ice age. There's nothing you can do to restore such soils. So it's it's a pity to and a shame to go with such big machines over the um, woodland floor, over the soil. And so we are using horses. We are using horses. The work with horses in, in the woods, uh, that's a tradition made since 6,000 years. And it's still working uh, today. And it's when you calculate it incomplete, uh, when you uh, calculate the damage you're doing to the so uh, soil, when you calculate the machine costs and so on, then you find out that the horses are cheaper. They are cheaper. And uh, many foresters say, ah, we don't have that many horses to do all the work. No, there's no demand. And therefore, we don't have many horses. And the most horse keepers of those, uh, uh, we say something like trekking horses, uh, those Horse keepers, there are just a few, and they say we would love to have more jobs uh, for doing such work, but there's no demand. And that's what we are doing and what we are practicing in our academy. We're not making hike guided tours and things like that, but also seminars for woodland owners, which uh, like to change the um, practice of management. 
I myself have been really struggling with the idea of machinery use, even in restoration work, say for creating swales or to bring coarse woody debris into streams for salmon habitat complexity. And I've actually operated machines myself this last summer while building the native species nursery, and I see the soil compaction and destruction that is inevitable with machines. And it did feel almost spiritually disrespectful when compared to techniques that use slow human-animal strength. And so I wonder, do machines have some use in reforestation or restoration work? But hearing you speak, it reminds me that it's not worth it, even though there is this intense feeling of urgency and the machine has been invented and it's been conditioned in our mind that machines are fast and efficient. And now with so much damage happening on earth, this feeling of we must use machines because they will be faster and we can't possibly protect and conserve and restore all of this land in a timely way without the use of machines. So I definitely feel that struggle in myself. And this other topic that I've been really questioning right now is forest thinning. There's also this dogmatic notion of thinning in forest management as there is with machines and restoration. And it's believed and a common practice that cutting intermittent trees opens up light in the canopy letting the remaining trees grow more vigorously and with a more straight structure, which is then, of course, more profitable. Yet this idea is rooted in an understanding of trees as individualistically competitive. And you thoroughly dispel this in your book, describing how thinning can actually do more harm than good. And you've also now explained to us how fast-growing trees don't actually live the longest and they may not even be the healthiest. So would you tell us how you've learned about the effects of thinning on forest communities and how does this widely accepted notion lack an appreciation for the cooperative and communal reality of forest as we're dealing with so many plantation forests, so many second, third growth forests that are extremely overgrown in so many senses and also a fire danger what do we do in place of commercial thinning? Is there another option that you see that's more beneficial in the long run for a healthy ecosystem? To begin with your last question about the fire. Um, yeah, I think um, the far the ecosystem is away from nature, the higher is the fire danger. You can see that in Portugal, for example, they um, used to have uh, oak forest in former times, and nowadays, they have many conifer forests and also eucalyptus forests. And, uh, and now they are the most endangered country in, in Europe concerning fire, wood fire, uh, um, because of those plantations, because it's it's like an, uh, like uh, gasoline, um, the, the leaves on, on the ground. So when someone uh, uh, lights a cigarette and throws it away, uh, the whole forest is burning instantly. And uh, whereas the old oak forest uh, was not able to burn, you can try to, to uh, light uh, a beech or oak tree, a living tree, it's not possible. Uh, um, so um, I think forestry is causing many problems uh, where we're forced to say, ah, that's a problem of nature, that's a problem of climate change. There are problems of nature, there are problems of climate change, but they wouldn't be that strong 
uh, without um, forestry. So to come f uh, to another topic you you um, mentioned that the that trees um, we were say uh, or told that trees compete in a forest um, and that when we thin a forest there's more space for the other trees to grow faster. Yes, those trees are growing faster, but they shouldn't because fast growing trees won't become very old. That's perhaps uh, you can compare it to the industrial animal keeping. Pigs were, are forced in those uh, yeah, industries, you can say, to grow in, in five or six months uh, ready for slaughter. And um, when you put such um, pigs out of uh, the stables and bring them in a, uh, to an animal keeper, we have here uh, some people who care for pigs like that, they won't become much older than one year because uh, their body is exhausted from fast growing, uh, their lungs, their heart and whatsoever. It's, it's so, uh, so stressed from this fast growing process that those pigs are not able to live very much longer. So um, you have the same problems with such plantations. Um, at first, when you plant a tree, the roots are damaged. It's like uh, opening your your body and uh, put your gut out, for example. And the roots are not used to see sunlight. And you, you take them uh, out of the tree nursery, put them in a new soil, you compress the soil, then you squeeze uh, the roots, perhaps you cut, you even cut the roots. And when you know that at the root tips, there are brain-like structures with brain-like processes going on. And when you cut those tips, you will, the, the roots will restore, but not in the same quality. So the roots are damaged. The trees are not rooting very deep anymore after planting. That's a general um, a thing. And uh, afterwards, they they grow very fast, um, too fast. They get exhausted, so they are not able to defend very good against bark beetle attacks. And uh, they are not very socialized. But we, we can see that, for example, that old stumps, they, in most cases, they don't get support from surrounding trees when this old stump is in a plantation because uh, planted trees won't connect that good and that quality like trees in a, a natural forest. So uh, plantations are full of weak but good looking trees, good looking to the industry. And we have learned that when the forest industry say, hey, that's a good tree, but in reality, it's a weak tree. It's a tree which is much too uh, tall for for this age, and this tree is endangered by uh, fire. It's endangered by insects. It's endangered by hot summer days. And uh, when then such a big plantation becomes problems, then most people say, "Ah, that's nature." But I say, "No, that's forestry." So, what can we do as restorationist as holistic managers to deal with the problems left in the wake of these plantation forests? First, it's necessary to see what is the main problem. The main problem is that we don't want to lose time. But um, the question is, is it really important for nature uh, to make this restoration in one decade or two decades? Uh, nature has time, we don't have time. We want to see results, that's on one hand. On the, on the other hand, we are destroying nature in a speed that uh, it's necessary to hurry up a little bit. And I can understand that. Uh, and it's also for good for us to see results because it's a good motivation. And so I would make a combination. 
um, I would perhaps plant here and there trees, um, uh, and that's more for us than for nature because we can see a uh, little forest, we can see results, and it's good to see results. On the other hand, it's uh, um, letting nature doing the job. For example, when we have here our spruce plantations and we want to change them, we say, okay, um, the fastest thing would be to plant little beech trees. But as I said, when you plant a tree, you damage it. So um, it come a big tree, but not a healthy tree, and we want to have healthy trees. So we try to work with the nature, and that means that we make big boxes, wooden boxes um, in the forest, Therein we put uh, in uh, acorns and beech nuts, and then uh, the birds like scrub jays, that's a raven bird, uh, it comes and uh, picking up those seeds and uh, storing them around in the forest floor for as, as a winter depot. So, and, and this scrub jay uh, always wants to be on the safe side. It just needs, let's say, 1,500 um, beech nuts, uh, but it's storing around about 10,000, uh, yeah, I want to be on the, the safe side. So that means that 8,500 beech nuts are able to become seedlings in, in the next spring. And seedlings with an intact root system, they were seeded in a natural way, and that uh, with just a little cost. For example, when we plant a beech tree that costs one euro, or let's say one dollar, and um, uh, we need for, uh, for a square kilometer, let's say, I think, two million seedlings to have uh, something like, okay, forest. It's not a very good forest, but it's okay with uh, two million plants. So that costs two million dollars. And when we let do the birds, the job cost for a square kilometer, perhaps, let's say, two hundred dollars. Just two hundred dollars. And the, the, the bird is happy to do the job because it gets enough to feed. So... Um, that's exactly the method I would recommend. Let nature do the job, and if you want to try to show the direction or to speed up a little bit this process, then it, it's good to offer these this birds seeds of the trees you want to restore, or if it are uh, seeds which are not eaten by birds or, or other animals which um, bring it out in the nature, then you can see uh, bring yourself uh, the seeds in the forest and bring them aground. And uh, the second best is to plant here and there a group of trees, but it would always be best to plant groups and not single trees. To have little, little hotspots where the, the development is a little bit faster, and that is a is an advantage even for the seeded uh, trees because uh, then we have shadow in the forest, we have uh, less wind in the forest. That uh, that means that we have a more humid uh, microclimate. So that's perhaps the best thing would be a combination. And then uh, all are happy, the nature and the people who are uh, so good in bringing back nature. That was so helpful to hear, especially as I'm setting up this native species nursery and have put so much thought and care into strategy behind how to reforest damaged landscapes, whether that's been clear-cut land or burned areas. And a lot of times, especially in California, Oregon, and Washington, with all of the land use change, areas where there used to be oak savannas have been taken over by dug fir, which actually is invasive in those areas. And then places that used to have redwood have been taken over by hardwood, such as oaks and madrones, because the redwood isn't able to spread as quickly as these other hardwoods in the sun. And so there's this 
complexity to reforestation. And it's not just as simple as walking out and planting a million trees, which in and of itself is not simple. So to hear your thoughts with the birds and the biodiversity, which I'm very committed to when replanting, it's not just planting the one conifer that is what's been conditioned as the valuable tree, but how do we replant biodiversity along with understanding that these trees need shade and they need each other and they need the whole community and also being aware of the compaction to the soil. It's just a lot to take into consideration and I think also with you bringing up this deep understanding of the time frame of us humans and then the time frame of nature and the forest and how different those are and how we need to take that into consideration when we're thinking about how to be the best earth stewards we can be. And the other thing that came up for me as you were speaking was the thinning and even how one may think that thinning is beneficial for forest health and fire safety it not always is that case and we really need to think about this more fully not just thinning but then selective logging and how so much of the time when trees are selectively logged the trees that are chosen are consistently the quote desirable timber trees with a certain structure that's straight and I think about well are we not removing certain trees and usually the oldest trees from the gene pool if we were to selectively log what do you feel is the best way to go about that when selecting certain trees and how to basically honorably harvest trees if that were the case for communities that still rely on logging for their economy yeah uh, I, I would work yeah without big machines um, that means uh, in in every case where uh, the machines are not able to uh, drive on um, roads on, on dirt roads i would choose to, uh, to do it with with horses and i would uh, like to felt if a tree should be felled with woodworkers. That's good for jobs and that's good for the forest and that's also good for for the money because uh, you earn much more money with uh, a healthy forest. And um, when it gets to the thinning, uh, to be honest, uh, it, it would, wouldn't make any sense if we, we would choose trees we uh, couldn't use for, for planks, for example, uh, just choosing the tree because it's less worse for the forest. And we don't know how much a, a tree is worth for a forest. So it's always okay when you manage a forest to take out what we really need. And therefore, because our needs are sometimes a contradiction to the needs of a forest, um, we need those protected areas and in between some little areas, perhaps just 50 yards or so in, in diameter. And in this area, the, the trees are allowed to grow and to, to um, keep their complete genes. Because um, if you thin a forest in the first years, uh, the foresters take out the trees which are not straight and have too thick branches or other uh, things. And that means that they are, um, are uh, bringing them, they are breeding 
the the, uh, the the trees to a, a type which is is not um, not really wild. It's it's a domesticated uh, tree species afterwards with just a few wild genes left, and there are some uh, very important things missing. For example, a wild tree is uh, able to withstand storms uh, much better than a domesticated tree because. Um, it's it's able to move back and forth without breaking. So um, uh, without breaking, and and a domesticated tree with uh, good stem for forest industry, which is very straight and uh, where uh, the fibers inside are, are straight too, without drilling, um, those trees are uh, break much easily in heavy storms. So um, it's always good to have those little spots inside with wild trees with a complete genes. And uh, over the pollination in spring, they mix their genes with the uh, genes of the managed forest. And so you keep the wild gene reservoir of those uh, forests. Um, that's the method uh, we are doing. And so according to um, the moment, uh, to, according to our knowledge up to day, we uh, say that's the best compromise for managing forests because we are also important as humans and we it's okay to to take out what we need out of the forest but we it's perhaps a better balance that it is now and what's very important for me to say when we protect nature for example what's what's wonderful i love what you told about uh, the restoration of forest and and uh, former woodlands what you're doing that's really a great job and um uh, what what we uh, should know is that um, over long time frame, the next ice age will come, will destroy that wonderful forest, a new forest will be built, and that's an coming and going like it was ever in, in the whole time the Earth uh, is, is in our universe. But nowadays we have the problems, and that are our problems. And when you protect the forest, or when you restore a forest, and or plant uh, plant new trees, then you protect uh, the people. The, hum uh, the human species, because uh, uh, nature protection is in, in first uh, the protection of ourselves, and I think it's it's uh, very important to be aware, aware of that. So there is no distance. Here is nature, and he uh, there are we. And we are uh, working against each other. No, we are one system, and when we protect our system, we protect ourselves. to now turn the conversation towards forest and climate and how this relationship is much more expansive than the sequestration of carbon. Forests are the reason precipitation even reaches the landlocked interior of continents. 
through the cyclical creation of clouds as water is intercepted, evaporated, and transpires as it moves inland. So could you share with us what you know of this phenomenon and help us understand why coastal forests are essential in this life-giving system? Yeah, um, that's a research, I think, from Russian uh, scientists, which found in the Amazon region um, uh, more and more heavy droughts um, in the last decades. Um, and uh, they asked, why? Is it because of the climate change? I think the climate change is uh, nowadays the, the easiest explanation, but in this uh, special case, they found out that um, forests are working like a water pump. Um, Within a range of, uh, let's say, three or four hundred miles from the coast, the clouds uh, are losing the rain and uh, then disappear. So after uh, the German edition, it's uh, 600 kilometers. I think it's around about five, uh, four hundred miles. Um, after four hundred miles, uh, there usually you in, in the continents you have a desert because there are no clouds anymore. They have lost their rain in those four hundred miles trip from the coast to the, uh, the inland, and afterwards you have a desert. But if you have a forest in this region, then the rain falls in, the humidity uh, is gassing out, is forming new clouds, the clouds are shifting into deeper into the country and uh, raining again, and when there's another forest going deeper into the continents, uh, and there's another forest, and so on, so the, the, the water is handed deeper and deeper into the continents by trees. And um, the Russian researchers found out that even uh, 2,000 miles away from the coast, you have the same humidity, the same rainfall amount like at the coast. But when you destroy the coastal forest, uh, you destroy the main water pump, which is responsible for the first part of the chain. When you destroy it, then it's logical that the rest behind gets drier and drier. And that's the reason why uh, many regions get more uh, deserted, gets drier, because uh, we have destroyed so many forests whether it is in the United States or Canada or Europe. There, when, you, when you look at an, uh, time shift films where how the forest disappeared in the last two centuries in the Northern Hemisphere, then it's no surprise that the inner of the continents gets drier and drier. Therefore, it's very important to bring the forest back. And uh, therefore, yeah, I can say ju just again, it's, it's wonderful uh, to hear from you that you are planting trees and are working on the restoration of woodlands. Forests are more than habitat, more than just biodiversity. It's more than carbon sequestration. They also call in the rain. And for us here in California, and honestly, all up and down the West Coast, drought is a major concern for many people. And so when we continue to log our forest and then plant with agriculture or develop suburbs, which then pump water out of these aquifers that are then not recharged by forest, we're getting ourselves into this water management issues and water scarcity. And I know this is really happening all over the globe, whether that's in China, South America. So I think this concept of forest as water pump is so deeply important as we look to the future for human survival and survival of biodiversity and 
our other kin. So I was also so fascinated to learn that you have initiated a living gravestone project which preserves a stretch of forest by selling burial plots with trees as living gravestones, not only as it lets the trees live out their lives fully, ensuring they won't be cut down, but also instills a sense of regeneration and earth-based ceremony into human death. And as our dominant culture has been so dissociated from death and fears and it sterilizes death, I hope to see and be a part of more initiatives such as this in my lifetime. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on what projects like this can bring to communities. That's it's, it's really a lovely pro- project um, for many reasons. Uh, at first, uh, I thought, okay, I had to get an idea how to protect an old beech tree forest which should be clear-cutted uh, by the forest authorities. And, and uh, I thought, okay, uh, we we need a rescue plan. And uh, then there came up the idea in Switzerland that to to bury the urns of people in forests. And I thought, okay. Uh, that would be a perfect idea and uh, we planned the project, we made the project and afterwards I realized that's even better because it's, it's, it brings back the real sense that, that we belong to nature, that we are a part of the nature and after dying our body will go back to nature without being an environmental problem uh, which many people think about nowadays because of the medicine and what you have all in your, in your body. That's no problem when uh, the body is burned and the, and, uh, the urn is, um, is brought into the root system of an old beech tree because it's most, uh, most of your remaining ash is um, calcium. It's not bad for the tree and it's vice versa. And uh, it shows that that your body is going to be uh, something new afterwards in the in form of timber or leaves. That shows for me even better that that we are not not evil to the forest. We are part of the forest with with uh, 7.6 billion people on this little globe. It's a little bit too much, but that's not no problem we individually can solve. So uh, I think it's better to live in, in harmony with the forest, to do the things we can do. We, we are not able to solve all problems. Um, and uh, and th- we shouldn't think too much about this, but we should think about problems we can solve. Like your restoration projects, that is burying people in forest, have living headstones. It's much e- easier to the to people to handle with death. Um, we see it in every case, a tragedy to lose a family member, but when you're in the forest, and it's it feels you you, you see the nature and you are aware of that the, your beloved family member is part of this wonderful system while living and also being deaf. So the circle closes, and uh, what what uh, your soul is doing that's not um, the question in this case. But I think for for many families. It's a good feeling to know that their beloved family member is resting in, in such a peaceful uh, environment. And uh, yeah, and so for us, it, it's, it's a wonderful combination because those uh, family members buried in this forest, they protect protect with their urn the, the tree which they are buried at. Uh, so it's even able to protect forest after having died. So. Yeah, it sounds perhaps a little bit crazy, and most uh, foresters, which we, uh, I spoke about before um, making this project, say, "Ah, you crazy guy! No, now you're a corona and uh, not a forester anymore." 
And I say, okay, I'm, I love to talk with people, to help people in this very sad situation. It's, it's for me a better job than uh, cutting old mother trees and selling them to China, for example. What a beautiful solution for so many of our disconnections. I really love that. And I hope that this burial forest can continue to spread throughout the world. So for our last and bonus question, I heard you speak in an interview about how recent research is uncovering that plant roots emit and respond to sound. And in reflection, you said something along the lines of, with every answer, 10 new questions arise. And there's just so much truth to that and embracing all that we cannot make sense of and perhaps will never be able to. What do you think of this sound that's coming from the roots? And what is your intuition about what is being communicated? We know that that uh, there are a lot of things going on and that trees uh, have perhaps more ways to communicate than we have. Um, let's say it again. The, the main problem is that trees are so much slower than we are. The, the electrical signal within tree tissue is traveling as much as one centimeter per second. Then our body from head to feet, it needs just two milliseconds. That's thousands times of uh, faster. So that's the main Difficult, uh, difficulty for us to de to detect to research trees, but uh, to, to come to your question, um, uh, it's a new research from Australia that trees, for example, are not uh, are just able to hear each other, but for example, to detect where water is flowing in, in the underground by hearing it, and they tried to uh, they made an experiment and uh, one sound came from a computer and in some tubes which were um, brought into the earth and uh, in the soil and uh, near the other tube there was real water flowing and the trees were able to hear the real water and um, bring their roots in this direction. So uh, they the trees don't have ears uh, and some scientists in, in Germany say ah that's not scientifically uh, not correct but I think when we are dealing with sound detection and it doesn't matter if um, being has ears or whatsoever, but for me, it's more important if it is able to hear sound waves. And trees are definitely able to hear sound waves. They are able to hear each other and they are able to hear, for example, that's just one uh, detection. Uh, they are able to hear water flowing in the underground and water is very important for trees. So they are able to orientate and uh, that's um, another advantage which trees have. Just incredible, Peter. I'm so grateful for your life's work and your relationship with the forest and how much you have dedicated to understanding them, protecting them, and teaching others how we can be better stewards. So I thank you so much for that and for the time you've spent with us on For the Wild podcast. And I'm so looking forward to meeting you in person in March. And I have so many other questions that I can't wait to ask you when I meet you because it is a really foundational moment for us here on Cougar Mountain, which is this land that a number of us are setting up this nursery on. So just know that you have been fundamental in our learning and our in the way that we move forward with our reforestation project. And we'll be in Perfect. touch. Thanks. 
Yeah, thank yeah. you, Peter. So thanks. I'm, I'm, really, I'm really looking forward to our meeting in, in March because I'm, I'm yeah, yeah I, I, I love to talk to people which are are so uh, hardworking on on bringing back nature. It's 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 really good to have a, a network, and it's it's mm. it's uh, really time and necessary to to make it in these days. Perfect. Yes. Really happy about. That. Thank you. Oh, me too. <laughs> Thank okay. you very much, and bye bye. Bye bye. All the music you heard today was by Eola with This is the World, Future Hymns, and How Far Am I from Canon. Our theme music is Like a River by Kate Wolf and Silence Returns by Bo. I'd like to thank our incredible podcast team, our producers, March Young and Andrew Stores, Research Director Madison Mogolski, Media Director Molly Lee Bove and to all the other soulmates here at For the Wild. Our podcast relies on your donations, so please head over to forthewild.world and make a contribution to help us continue keeping the show going. And while you're there, check out our new podcast study guides and let us know what you think. Thank you, and until next time. <laughs>